spring forward this morning. We're going to keep going in our series, Carrying the Kingdom. We're going to talk about the keys of the kingdom this morning. And uh, I'm going to cover a lot of ground because I want to tie some things together for you. I want you to understand that God's design has been around a very long time. He is very aware of his design before the foundation of the world. And we're an instrument and a part of that design as carriers of the kingdom. And we're going to get into the keys of the kingdom in the coming weeks. And today we're going to talk about that, how those keys of the kingdom came to the church and then what that actually means for the church. And so I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 15. And I'm going to talk about Abraham. I'm going to talk about Moses. I'm going to talk about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And then I'm going to talk about the church and the torch of the church and how God passed all those things on to him. And uh, I'm going to be telling stories without you being able to read. If I lose you in a story, I don't want you to feel bad or guilty. I don't want you to think you need to go to a church where they'll dumb it down to a point where you feel comfortable in your lack of knowledge. <laughs> I just said that out loud. <laughs> but what I want you to do is to be challenged to discover those stories. And I've got an incredible Bible out front for sale. We're going to sell it today for 30 bucks. It's called the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. I have an NIV in that, and I also have New King James. We're going to order some more. If you'd like one, we'll order you one at $30. I, I, you know, I, I recommend it. I, th- I'm accused of being paid commission. I promise you I don't get it. But the, the explanations of the, the kingdom dynamics and the Greek words and the Hebrew words that are designed there will make Scripture come alive Everything is about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. The commentaries at the bottom that explain those verses, they aren't, uh, they, get, they give you multiple approaches at times, but they are born from a place of a Spirit-filled believer. And so you're going to love them. The cross-references aren't the same in every Bible. And the cross-references in this Bible are fantastic. So we're going to be selling those out front as well. And... Uh, Get you one if you don't have one, and get to knowing the Word of God. Amen? Amen? He wants you to. He wants you to know it. And so I'm just going to go through some things and talk about God's design, God's plan, and the plan for the church as carriers of the kingdom, as having authority with the keys of the kingdom. It starts back in Genesis chapter 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 15 and 17, you can see that covenant being made. Now, in, in that covenant, what God says to Abraham is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an everlasting covenant with you. It's going to be forever. Say everlasting with me. Everlasting. everlasting. Now, everlasting means never-ending. It's a never-ending covenant. It's made with Abraham. You know, he's called the father of the faith. Abraham is. He is the father of the faith. God says to Abraham, see, see the numbers in the, the sky? See the stars in the sky? See the sand on the seashore? That is going to be the numbers of your seed. Now, when he's talking about seed, he's talking about those who would believe in Yahshua or Jehovah. 
Those that would come to faith and be in relationship with God would become part of the family of God. They would be known as the seed of Abraham. And so God makes this covenant with Abraham. Now, from this covenant, actually from Genesis chapter 3 on, from this covenant, God begins to show you, you and I, Jesus. In the first place that he shows Jesus is in this covenant. He actually, which sounds kind of gross to our American way of thinking, he opens up two animals, multiple animals, lays them out, cuts them in half, lays them out side by side with a pathway in the middle. And that's how they used to make a covenant that day. Two men that were coming into covenant would walk between those two animals and make a contract. It was a contract with them. Well, what God did, he realized that you and I could bring nothing to this covenant. We had nothing to offer to bring to this covenant. There was nothing we could do that would help bring about this covenant. And so what he did was he walked through for Abraham and he walked through for God. In other words, he did all the work. Does that sound like the gospel? There's nothing you can do to earn being in relationship with Jesus. There's nothing you can do to be in relationship with the Father. You can't earn it. You, you can't work your way in. There's nothing you have to offer. So what God did with Abraham is he put him asleep and he did the work. What God did with you and I is he put Jesus on the cross. And he said, Jesus has done it for you. You have nothing to offer. It is a, a work and a look at what who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do. It was an everlasting covenant, and that covenant was made with Abraham. Do you see that? That's in Genesis chapter 15 and 17. God administers both side, sides. He satisfies both sides. And then he even goes a step further. In Genesis chapter 22, he tells Abraham, take your son, your only begotten son, to the top of the mountain and make him a sacrifice for sin. And so Abraham takes his son, his only begotten son, to the top of the mountain to make a sacrifice for sin. Now he's got the wood on his back for the sacrifice, and Abraham looks at Isaac, his son, and says, God will provide the sacrifice. And he gets to the top of the mountain, and guess what? There's a lamb of God caught in the briars. He pulls Isaac down, and he places the lamb of God on the altar and makes sacrifice. It's a picture of what's to come. But what you need to understand about this everlasting covenant with Abraham, he says to Abraham, you're going to live in peace. You're going to live in peace. But it's prophesied in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, that there's going to be 400 years of captivity. You're going to die in peace, but the people, your seed, 400 years. God is silent for 400 years. His people go into captivity, Right? Are the promises to Abraham still good? Yeah, He made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, did he not? The promises are still good. The people are in captivity for 400 years. That happened. Why is that important to me and you? Because God has a plan for your life. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about your history. 
He knows every day you're going to live on this earth. He knows his plans for you, and they are plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future and a purpose. God knows his plans for you. He knew his plans for the seed of Abraham, not only for 400 years, but he knew that he was going to send the deliverer named Moses. Moses was going to be the deliverer. He was going to come, and he was going to set the captives What's that sound like? It sounds like the gospel. Jesus is the answer to the gospel. But that gospel was started being preached with the life and the history of Abraham. Everything that Abraham had, everything Abraham was about, was actually the story of Jesus. That's why he's called the father of faith. And so Moses... Is the deliverer. He actually takes them out of captivity. He crosses the Red Sea, which is a picture of baptism. The Red Sea is parted, and they walk through the water. They get to the other side, and they walk in the wilderness. And they have to learn how to follow God. Once they learn how to follow God, they get to enter into the promised land. And in the promised land, what do they begin to do? They begin to beat back the enemy. Isn't that right? What's that a picture of? It is a type of Christ and a type of church. It is, the, it is a picture of the future. And so Moses does that. He crosses into the promised land. But after Moses, there's, just a, bu there's a bunch of prophets. Now, most of the prophets, they, they prophesy about the coming of the Christ. Every, every prophet prophesied about the coming of the Christ. But mostly they prophesied to repent and get right with God, to repent and realign yourself with the ways and the thinking of God. Just about every prophet did that. Repent, repent, repent. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, that there's going to be this guy that's going to come that's going to bridge the gap. He's going to be the one who ushers in Messiah. He's going to be the Christ. Malachi, in the chapter 4, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament, there's a prophecy of John coming. In other words, what I want you to see is this connection. Abraham, 400 years, this prophesy. Moses shows the church in action, and then there's this prophet era, but there's this always this pointing to, it's pointing to the Christ, and in several verses, pointing to John. John is instrumental. Jesus said about John that he was the most, uh, that he was the most highly regarded prophet. That there's no other prophet that is more highly regarded than John. That would include Elisha, Elijah. That would include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. You name it, there's no prophet that was a greater prophet as far as not only authority, but in respect and rank as John. Why? He lived a short life. He didn't do much. He got beheaded, for heaven's sake, quickly. Why was he the highest ranking? John said, I must decrease and he must increase. Now, was he talking about himself to some degree? But mostly, he was talking about the Old Testament 
and the New Testament. There's a new covenant coming. There's a, there's, a, there's a new era coming. There's a new age. It's the same thing, but it's the fulfillment of it. He married the Old Testament way, which was circumcision of the flesh, which identified you as a believer, which we don't talk about much in our culture. Number one, it's painfully thought about. And number two, it's just kind of weird to be thinking about that and a walk with God. But that was the sign and that was the law of Moses that had to be carried out to identify yourself as a child of God. The new covenant said we're not going to circumcise the flesh, we're going to circumcise the heart. There's going to be a circumcision of the spirit. There's a new age coming and the old age must decrease, and the new age must increase. And so what made John the most admired, the most uh, highly ranked prophet was his leading the way to the one that all that Old Testament talked about. He was the he was the third leg in a, in a four-leg 100-meter race or whatever it is, one-mile race where you, everybody runs 100 meters or whatever that is. I don't know the exact thing, but he, he's handing the baton to Jesus. And Jesus is what all this other stuff is talking about. Are y'all, are y'all tracking with me or have I totally lost all y'all altogether? All this points to Jesus. And Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He, is, he authenticates, he says about himself, that he authenticates everything that was said. So you got John the baptizer. He preached a baptism of repentance. He was the forerunner of Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, 3, it says about him, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, This is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then enter Jesus, who had this circumcision of the heart versus circumcision of the flesh. Romans 2.29 says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. So circumcision is an inward thing of the heart born of the Spirit. Jesus ushers in this new era. He removed the veil. He is the one that had access, gave us access to God. Jesus' work at the cross gave us access to God. You do realize that no other person before the death and resurrection of Jesus had access to God. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon the prophets, and they were the ones who had that. But no, nobody else, prophets and kings, nobody else had access to God at all. They had to go through the priest. And Jesus, death and resurrection, ushered in this new era, brought in, handed by John, who, which made him the greatest. And so they go into this new era, 
where the veil is rent, and we all now have access to God so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Grace being access to the power of God that can do more than we can do on our own. There's an access that's going to be made available to you because of the work of Jesus. And so everything in the Old Testament with Abraham, this everlasting covenant, that God made said, there's this everlasting covenant, and it looks like this, it looks like this, do this, do this, do this, do this. This is how we're going to do it until the real thing comes. When the real thing comes, we're going to change the way we're doing it, and it's going to actually get the job done so that the power of God can flow on everybody. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so there's an opening up on heaven of heaven, but the whole story is the same story. It's not a different story. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Abraham is the father of Jesus. Amen? So he removed the veil. He says that he fulfilled everything the Old Testament talks about. Jesus said, I accomplished it. That's why when he was on the cross, he said, you remember the words of Jesus? It is finished. He accomplished everything on the cross. It meant something else, which I'm about to get to here in just a minute, but it included the, every, everything that was written in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 from the New Living Translation, says this. Don't misunderstand why I have come, Jesus said. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to accomplish their purpose. So Jesus is fulfilling and accomplishing the purpose of all Old Testament, of Abraham, of Moses, the whole idea of John the baptizer ushering him in. Then Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes, what he actually does at the cross when he says that it is finished is he, he takes hold of the authority. He takes back the authority that was lost in the garden. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, Adam loses the authority, the dominion, the authority over hellish forces because he caved into them. Everybody's pretty clear on that, right? That that's why, that's, why we, that's why we've got to repent. That's why sin is in the world. We understand that as believers. That, that That's the case. And so we lost authority. What Jesus did on the cross was got back authority. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. And that's the beginning place of everything I've done so far is the introduction. But I, I want you to see that there's a history. And I also want you to see that God's got a plan. And his plan was that the church appropriate the kingdom of heaven on this earth until Jesus returns and kicks hell out of here forever. But our job is not just to be saved. It, we have more expectation from God on this generation than they ever did when they were wandering in the wilderness. So oftentimes we get all you know, bogged down with the idea, I can't believe them people wandered in the wilderness and they were so stupid. 
You know, Paul, he was just, he, you know, he, I don't know what he was thinking. Peter, you know, he was short-tempered and quick-mouthed. I just can't believe Jesus didn't pick him. What about Thomas? Can you believe he doubted? Can you believe, could you walk with Jesus and then betray him like Judas? We always look back and say, what about these people who did, and, and, and there has been no expectation on any generation from God greater than the expectation that's on the church today. Because there was no other generation that the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh. So Jesus came, and he came, and when he died on the cross, and he said, it is finished. What he was saying is finished is I've gotten the authority back. I came, I died, I paid the price. Now Satan no longer has authority. I do. That's what, that's what Jesus said. What's finished? The finished work. Authority's been taken back. So he immediately goes to the wilderness to be tempted. So if you would look with me, let me, let me go over a couple of scriptures first. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and then I'm going to go over like four scriptures. The first scripture I want to go over about authority, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said, he said to his disciples, he said, all authority, say that with me, all authority, not some authority, not 80% of authority, but all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he gives us the great commission. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, he says this, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him to. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. And so Jesus says in Matthew 16, 19, not only have I taken authority, but I will give you the keys, he says to Peter, after he says he's going to build his church, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so Jesus is saying that he got the authority, right? He got the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he says he's going to give this to the church. Now, key means you have authority. Nobody has a key to this church except those in authority, right? Nobody has your keys to your house except those who have authority to get in your house, right? You don't give a key to somebody who doesn't have authority. You give keys to those who have authority. And Jesus says that he's given the church the keys. First of all, he's gotten the authority, and then he gives the authority to the church. You clear on that? So what is our assignment is to open the things that have been made open to us. And so we have to understand first and foremost who we are, whose we are, and what authority we have. And so he says that he's given us those keys. Now, if you'll remember in Acts, or and at the end of John and Luke and others, Luke especially, Jesus said, Jesus said, to the disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. I want you to wait there for the promise. 
What's the promise? The promise is the promise of Abraham. That there's going to be this great blessing by the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, that I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to have visions. They're going to dream dreams. They're going to prophesy. There's going to be an awakening to the things of the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to go, and when you go there, you're going to receive power. What kind of power are they going to receive? They're going to receive power over hell. It's power given to the church over hell. Now, 80% of the church, maybe, I don't know what the percentage is. I made that number up. So don't go check it. I don't know what percentage is, but a high percentage, how about that, of the church is getting their ticket punched to go to heaven, maybe, but not really even being about the mission that God created them to be on and that it would be kingdom advancers. And that takes being filled with the Holy Spirit, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that we have power over hellish forces. And until the church comes to grips with the fact that that's who they are, that we're going to be the biggest disappointment that God's ever had. But we're not, are we? Because we're going to take to our assignment, we're going to be empowered by the Lord, and we're going to go forward. But let's just take a look real quickly at this whole idea. If you've got your Bibles open, it's chapter 4 in Matthew. This is when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's one thing you need to know if you've got a pen. You could underline it. He was led up by the Spirit. The Spirit of God led him into wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can see that, first of all, the first thing that Satan does to Jesus is question his identity. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you are never, ever going to fulfill your mission in Christ. You have to know who you are. Jesus was solid on who he was, and he countered a twisted scripture with the real deal. And so he counters it with the word, and then the devil skipped that one went on to something else. Then he took him to the, uh, into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you're the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Satan again takes him to the highest point of the temple wall in Jerusalem. That is the southeast corner. It comes, it's very, very tall. The wall by itself would probably kill you. But then it just goes straight down a hill right into the valley which is a, a deep drop, that right there in that corner, is, is, is a cliff. He takes him there. It's, a, it's interesting that, that the devil took Jesus to church. I just want to <laughs> point that out. And then he quotes Scripture again. And then Jesus corrects him because he knows the Word, which is important for all of us. But that's not really what I want you to see. Those are all good. Verse 8, And again the devil took him up exceedingly high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, there's a couple things that I want you to see here. First of all, that he translated Jesus from one place to another. Now, we know with some types of physics that, that we know that there's another realm, but this is happening. This happened more than once. Jesus was transferred or translated across the lake. Uh, Philip was. You know, there, there are uh, Elijah. There's other people, Enoch. There are other people who we know went pshht. It's all over Scripture. So we know that that's a possibility. I just want to broaden your thinking. You know, I just want you to get you, open you up to some spiritual stuff. That's possible. Now, here's the deal. He says, he shows him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to Jesus, I'll give these to you if you will worship me. And Jesus didn't argue with him and say, you can't do that. They're not yours to give. He didn't say that. He said, you're only supposed to worship God. There's only one God. You're not supposed to worship anybody else. He didn't argue with him because they were his to give. Because he's the prince of the power of the air. Because they had been given to him by the first Adam. And what the first Adam couldn't do, the second Adam was in the midst of doing when he acknowledged the right pathway, which was to say there's only one God. But at that moment, the devil had the authority to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Now what's really interesting to me is, don't you think it would have been an easier task for Jesus just to bow down than it would to take the abuse on the cross? He knew his destiny. He knew before the foundation of the world that he was going to be beaten to unrecognizable state, that he was going to bleed, that his intestines were going to be sticking out, that he was going to die on a cross. The most horrible death humiliated before men, naked. All he had to do to capture the kingdoms of the world was bow. And he said, no, I will not. He was tempted to bow. And he did not. And because he did not, he took back dominion the way the Father had planned dominion to be taken back before the foundation of the world. This is not a fly-by-night plan B New Testament because the first one didn't work. This is a, a continued plan before the foundation of the world being carried out. Everything pointing to Jesus because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He's our all in all. He's our everything. So he says, you go wait in Jerusalem until the promise comes. The promise is going to be that you're going to become part of the body of Christ. You're going to be made sons and daughters of God. It doesn't matter whether you're male, female, slave, Jew, Gentile. 
It matters not your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your uh, sex. It matters not your social position. We all become part of the body of Christ through the blood of Jesus that was prophesied to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Carried out and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And you, being the church and the church age, will be empowered to have dominion over hell and its forces. Jesus said about that power that it's finished. That's what I want you to hear. When he said, it is finished, what's he talking about? He's talking about, I've taken dominion back. Death, where is your? And I give you authority. It's coming. So he empowers us. He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit so that we can empower to push hell back. And we're going to be pushing hell back in an incredible way if we're walking in the power of who we are as believers. If Satan hadn't convinced you, are you really a son of God? Are you really a daughter of God? Do you really have the power? Do you really have authority? If he's convinced you that you don't have any, that somehow that you've got to qualify for it, you can't qualify for the power. <laughs> y'all really need to hear me. I don't know if y'all will hear me or not. But there's no qualification. There's no work that you can do to be empowered by God. There's nothing. It is, it is grace and grace alone. It is, it is through faith. And what he did, Jesus Christ carried out both parts of the covenant. Your works do nothing for you. Surrender does. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus knew that that was him. He knew that he would, if he would fall to the ground and die and raise again, that he would produce much fruit. But he also knew that was you. He knew that that was the way to salvation, that you die and you're raised to newness of life. You're no longer circumcised in the flesh. You're circumcised in the spirit. You've been given a heart of flesh and not a heart of Stone. Jesus said, I want to empower you. And so then he gets in Luke chapter 10, verse 17 and 20. He empowers the 12. He sends them out. They go do their deal. But this is the one I like the best. This, this, is, one of, this is one of my favorite. And the reason one of my favorite is it, I want it to get past me. You see, what happens is when we think about Jesus sending out the 12, we think, well, this is his 12 disciples. You know, they were real close to him. They, they hunkered down with him. You know, they slept with him. They, they were the disciples. You know, they were the apostles. And so all, all, all that stuff stopped with the apostles. I mean, we, could, we come up with all kinds of reasons why we can't be in power. 
The devil tries to convince you all kind of ways, theologically, ways of thinking about God that you can't be empowered. Because he doesn't want you doing what you were created to do and what God expects us to do as the church. Moving out, bringing kingdom until Jesus comes back and establishes it here on earth where there's no sin. <laughs> Hallelujah. But he's, he's, got, he's got us in this place where we're supposed to receive that power and authority. Now, he says in Luke, the 70, my favorite. They, they go out and they do what Jesus said do and they return with joy. I love, I love the word joy. I'm not sure. In America, we might be a little too cultured for joy. Joy is joy, you know. But they came back with joy. Say that with me. They came back with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, when he's talking about that, he's not talking about the end times thing. He's talking about them pushing hell back, demons being subject to them. And then he says this, Behold, I give you authority to trample. I give you authority. Behold, I give you authority. Who's he talking to? The 70. He says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, which are hierarchies, we believe, of demonic forces like general, sergeant, different hierarchies, trample on uh, serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. Say that with me. And over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. That word for hurt, that Greek word for hurt means nothing can overpower you. In other words, there's nothing that has more authority than you. Because you are a son or daughter of God, nothing has more authority than you. That's interesting, isn't it? We don't, do we see that much? Do we see the church responding to that much? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written down in heaven. Now let me just get this, let's get this really clear. Demons are not subject to foreigners and sojourners and people that are still carnal. Demons and hellish forces are subject to citizens of heaven. And there are promises, the same promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the prophets, and John the Baptist that came through Jesus that are available for the church that we need to be rejoicing is this is just one key to the kingdom. This is just one element of the kingdom in our lives, this demon thing. Don't rejoice in that small thing because you got all this. You got the kingdom. Everything is yours. Every spiritual blessing, everything is yours. Rejoice that you're a citizen of heaven, that you're a child of God, that you're a son, that you're a daughter. And realize your potential in Christ and your mission as the church in America today. What is your mission? It's not my mission. It's our mission. Yeah. 
And that is to be kingdom carriers, to push back hell. Now, let me ask you a question. We're closing. And then a closing, I just want to ask you, how much fruit of the kingdom is being born in your life? You really need to ask yourself how much hell you see being pushed back. And I'm not talking about your little personal world, which is important. But if you really realize, is that who you are, how much time we spend in prayer and intercession, pushing hell back in the lives of the people that we love around us. It doesn't say they have authority. It says you have authority. It doesn't say they need faith. You need faith. Right? Golly, am I walking by myself or are y'all with me on this? I got two of us that's with me. That's three, four, five. Good. Highlight six. That's good. Man. How well is it doing? What's God's expectation for you? Are you still walking in the wilderness? Don't. Stop. Pursue God. Move into the promised land. He's got all this stuff available for you and to you. He didn't want you to be operating in the flesh. He wants you to be born in the spirit. He doesn't want you to be a, a citizen of this earth. He wants to be a citizen of the kingdom. You're a kingdom carrier. Your expectation is to be kicking hell out of hell, kicking hell off this earth, out of people's lives, praying it through. And I know we Facebook prayer. That don't count. That's a good thought. Did you pray? Yeah, I put it on Facebook. Oh, you were deeply interceding, weren't you? You were travailing over that. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? But, but then again, sometimes I go, Alex, come on, man. You're much better than this. You're a warrior. God wants you to be, God wants you to be engaged, man. Get engaged, Alex. Come on, Alex. What's your expectations, man? You don't qualify for anything, Alex. I don't need to qualify. My righteousness is as filthy rags. Jesus Christ did it all for me. He made a way for me. He's going to empower it. He's going to give me the grace, and his grace is sufficient for me to do everything he called me to do. Amen? What's my expectation of pushing hell back? What's your expectation? I hope it gets big. I hope I just busted your bubble about your expectation of pushing hell back. I hope I'm a do that. Do that with me, just for me. I got one in the boom. Why don't we stand? If you don't have any understanding, man, I just want you to just start reading the Word. I just walked you from Genesis <laughs> through Acts in one sermon. Get to know the Word of God, man. It's powerful. It's powerful. Father, help us to understand your plan. Help us to understand, God, that we are your kids. 
I pray, God, against any fault, against any accusation, against any person in this room who has been spoken that they don't deserve or they're not qualified, whatever it might be, from, from Satan when he asks, are you really a son of God? Are you really a daughter of God? If you were a daughter, all this stuff would be happening. If you were a son, all this stuff would be happening. You just push that back. You just push that back. You just get a hold of who God called you to be, and you press toward the kingdom. You start sowing seed of the kingdom, and you'll root, reap fruit of the kingdom. Father, I just pray that right now. Why don't you lay your hands on somebody near you? Let's just say this together. Father, say it with me. Father, we pray seed be sown of the kingdom and fruit be reaped. I pray for any lie that it would be exposed. Pray that we would recognize that we've been adopted to the household of God. Sons, daughters, kingdom carriers, ambassadors of Christ, kings, priests, ministers to our God. The glory of the Lord. Multiply that exceedingly in my brother and sister. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.